Good morning. Good morning to you in Wilmington. It's good to have you with us this morning. And if you'll open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. We're going to be in the 22nd chapter mostly today, but there's a little bit of summary that's going to take place in Numbers 21. And I'd like you to think about your life, or <clears throat> if this hasn't, if you've never felt this way, I'm fairly confident you may have seen it in someone else. Have you ever felt like you, you have all that you can handle in life, like that the Lord could not allow anything else to be in your plate? You're sort of overwhelmed just to make it through the day? Or you see a loved one or a friend that way, that they're in a season of life where just you know, you wonder, I don't know how they're carrying that load. Um, the Lord says in the scriptures that he won't ever give us more than we can bear. Uh, but that doesn't mean he won't give us what we can bear. And it's interesting to think about that, that if the Lord is committed not to break us, uh, by overburdening us, then there's times in our life where there's things that he would want to put on you or there's things that are yours to carry, but you're not ready to carry them. You may have felt this way. And I, and I think that age gives a little bit more uh, insight to this, how there's things that you gain about yourself, insights you gain about yourself as time goes on, that, you know, for myself, I've just become convinced that the Lord didn't want to show this to me early in my life because it might, it would have been untimely. That I might not have made good out of it. But when the right time comes, He lets you see it. And in that mindset, there's things that you and I, there's things that we receive from the Lord to deal with, and then there's things that the Lord is dealing with on our behalf that we don't see. In other words, all that we see is not all that is happening. There's things that the Lord's dealing with outside of our view. And, and we're going to see this today, uh, I think in, a, in an interesting way, in a very Old Testament way. So I got several practical goals today. One is just to you know, teach Numbers 22. But somewhere along that is also these, there's some classic Old Testament stereotype story sections that are going to come to life today that we can kind of address. So if we're looking at Numbers 21, and we're not going to read much of it, except I want to, uh, I want us to see it, uh, mostly just the titles. Like my chapter 21 begins with Arad Destroyed. So if we're going to think of like things that are on our plate or things that are on the plate of Israel, what they, can they handle? Well, in chapter 21, it starts with a king from Arad who's, they're, they're, just, they're just traveling, coming from the wandering, right? This is a section of scripture where Israelite, Israel is no longer wandering in the wilderness. They're now taking steps towards the promise of God. Every step they're taking is closer to the promise of God. It's purposeful. And a natural byproduct of that is they're now walking next to established peoples, nations. 
As long as you're wandering in the desert, you can wander in your desert all day long. Nobody cares. Nobody's claiming that land. Nobody wants it. Nobody can live there. So for about 38 and a half years, they wandered in the midst of the desert. No one cared. Now, as they're coming out of the wilderness, they're threatening. And the king of Arad sees opportunity in this. He sees them walking. He sees them walking through his territory. And he goes down. He raids them, takes people hostage. And the Lord allows Israel to go back and capture those people. He allows them to destroy Arad and capture them. Then they go to Edom. They say, can we come into Edom? Edom says, no, you can't come in. They have to go south. They complain. They get bitten by snakes. This was last Sunday. Uh, in, in fact, let's, let's do the map. This is our last map Sunday. So I'm very sad. But I will make it. Okay, but... Uh, so... <clears throat> if you think of... of uh, you know, Israel's wandering was all down here. And then they went over to uh, Edom. And this is the region of Edom right here. And they said, hey, can we come in? And Edom said, no way, Jose. You know, so, you know, they came up and they came over. And they said, no, you can't come in. So they got attacked by Arad, which was sad. But they won. And then they go south. And that's when they wind they were bitter and they were impatient and the Lord allowed serpents to sort of judge them and they said, ouch, and then we're sorry and then the Lord saved them. And now they have to travel on this outer road. Um, it's kind of on the fringe of the desert. They're traveling up. That's what they're doing. What they wish they could have done is come through Edom on the King's Highway, which is a really nice highway. But they, can't, they weren't allowed to do that. And they're coming up, and the next people that they see, or they come around, is, I've got to find another good color here. This is the land of Moab, right here. They pass Moab, <clears throat> and they keep coming up. And then they get to this area here. And this is all in chapter 21. And this area is occupied by a group of people called the Amorites, and the name of the big king of the Amorites is Shahon. He's a big deal. In fact, in Numbers 21, they actually have put in 21 some of the ancient songs sung about him. So there was, you know, you see, uh, verses 28, 9, and 30, they're just capturing the ancient lore of the time about this guy. But Sahon was great enough that he actually had put into subjection Moab. So Moab, this yellow country, is in subjection to the great king of Sahon. And when Sahon, when they come up to him, they knock on his door and say, hey, can we come in and get on the king's highway? Ultimately, what they're trying to get here. Here's the goal, right? <laughs> That's the goal. So they want to come in and they ultimately want to cross right here. And they say to Sahon, can we come in? And Sahon sees the opportunity. He's this great, powerful king. So he attacks them. And they, they kick his butt. Israel's victorious. And they move right in. They destroy uh, 
They destroy Sihon and his number two guy, Og of Bashan. He's another one. These are some fun names. They come and attack the Israelites and they destroy Og as well. And when all is said and done, Israel is camped right here. Okay? Right on the plain besides the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River. So by the end of chapter 21, Israel is at its last stop it's ever going to make before it moves into the promised land. The next, next time they break camp to move is the book of Joshua. The whole book of Deuteronomy takes place right here. Moses preaches the sermon of Deuteronomy in that little red circle. And the next time they break camp, they're stepping west and their feet are going to hit the dry riverbed of the Jordan as they go in to take Jericho. So this is a, they are knocking at the door when chapter 2 starts. Chapter 22. And let me read. I'm going to go ahead and read the first six verses of 22. And uh, it's going to introduce a character named Balak. Balak is the king of Moab, okay, which is that, that yellow country, okay? <clears throat> Here's what 22 says. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. So they're just on the other side of the river from Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammon, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite of me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Okay. So there's this King Balak, and he's the king of Moab, and he's sitting in the high ground of Moab, in the mountains of Moab, and he's looking down into the plains of Moab, and in the plains of Moab, he sees this numerous people, too many to count, who have just recently annihilated the king of the Amorites, whom the Moabites were not able to defend against. In other words, surely Israel must be a great people. Because they were able to overthrow and destroy the very king that, was in sub, that had put Moab into subjection. And that's why he's overcome with a very great dread. As he looks and right down the hill from him is this people that's too mighty for him to deal with. And he reaches out to the Midianites. The Midianites are... Uh, migratory, just a nomadic people sort of of the desert. And he reaches out to them and he sort of gives their plight. Hey, we're both in trouble here. We have a new neighbor that's come out of the desert. And this new neighbor is likely just to take over all the land. And he sends his best and brightest to get a guy named Balaam. 
Balaam is a seer or a diviner, a spirit guide. You might call him a sorcerer. Balaam has the reputation of being able to convince the spirit world to do what you would want them to do. You have a problem, you have enough money, you go to Balaam. And Balaam works it out with the spirit realm. Now, I know, depending on what you think of all this, you bet, how real or... What's important is they thought Balaam could do what Balaam said he could do. And they sinned for him. And he's not like a local subject. Balak the king is not saying, bring me, bring me Balaam. Yes, yes, sire. And they go and grab Balaam. He's not local. He's saying to his people, go see if you can convince Balaam to come to me. I'll show you. This is actually where, uh, this is where Balaam is. Okay, let me just show you real quick. So right here was Moab. Remember that big yellow country? Okay. Here's where Balaam lives. Way up here. Okay. This is the Euphrates. You see this green line? It's the Euphrates. There's the Tigris. So Balaam lives way up there. He's internationally known. He is the real deal. You have a problem, you send for Balaam. The whole ancient Near East knows about Balaam. We've excavated in archaeological digs, caves, not in Israel, but like in, the, in, the, in this area of the Levant, where there's panels that were written, and they're not written in Hebrew, it's some mixture, it's some ancient language between Aramaic, which is of Babylonian descent, and Canaanite, which is coming out of sort of where you call natural day Israel. There's some sort of in-between language that's in this archaeological dig on these panels that talk about a man named Balaam, son of Beor, who in the evening visits with the gods. Their word for gods is Elohim, just like Elohim, visits with the gods and does curses. He's famous. And they're going to get him. 340 miles north. Because Balak knows he gains nothing by trying to stir his God to action because his God was too weak for Sahon. And Sahon was too weak for Israel. Why go to your farmer's market God in downtown Moab if he was in, in unable to do anything. What we need is somebody who can convince the real gods with real power to do the real work. And there's only one guy who can do that, and it's Balaam. And so that's where they go. All right. I'll pick up and read in verse 7. Uh, and I'm going to read for a little while. Today we're, just, we're going to sort of just embrace the story in its wholeness. Okay, we're just going to we're going to be Old Testament people and actually live in the story. Verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave thanks, or excuse me, and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, 
Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come. Once again Balak sent princes, more in number, more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, and I, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night, said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. There's a sense in this. By the way, before we talk about this, we should appreciate the setting of the story. This story, I understand it's in the Bible, but as the story is taking place, there's every reason to believe that Israel is not wise to it. So, you might imagine Israel eventually comes to understand the story, but the story being told, as it's being told, is not a story about Israel. Israel's not even an actor in the story. They know nothing about it. This is a story about Balak in his own court with his own princes, being nervous of those people and sending a message to a faraway spirit man and getting a response. This, all of this is taking place out of sight, out of mind, out of the consciousness of Israel. Israel, they have all that they can handle right now. This is all taking place out of sight. And eventually, eventually, as we'll see next Sunday, all of this starts to collide and the story becomes known. But for now, Israel's not the wiser. And so you see, you see the princes of Moab going up to Balaam, they're bringing with them this fee, okay? He's a four-hire spirit man. They bring him the fee. He says no, because the Lord says to say no. They go back. Balak assumes probably, oh, we didn't offer him enough, so let's send better princes, more honor. All we just need to do is show him a little more honor, and we can get this famous guy to come to dumpy old Moab. So he sends better princes, makes a better offer, this time the Lord allows Balaam to go with him, but he says something important. He says, you can go, but only say what I tell you to say. Okay. I want to read verse 22 just by itself. 
because we, we have to work through a problem and then, then we'll, we'll move on. It's about to get really, really fun. Verse 22 says, But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took a stand in the way as his adversary. Now, I want to stop there because you may be thinking in your mind, wait a second, I thought God just told him to go. And now in verse 22, God's mad that he's going. What's the deal with that? And it's not, I'll be honest, it's not obvious or not 100% sure, but I'll say this is, this is what most think. And I think this is the right response is, you might think of this as, the Lord says to Balaam, go, but only say what I'm going to tell you to say. And as Balaam's going, the Lord sees in his heart, this guy's in it for the money. And his anger rises. In other words, he's going the wrong way. I don't mean directionally. I mean, he's going in the wrong spirit. And that makes the Lord angry. And as, as this section plays out, you'll see it. There's something wrong with the heart of Balaam that the Lord's dealing with. You might see, Balaam has nothing to gain by getting up and traveling all this distance to tell those people what they don't want to hear. Who pays for that? So you might think Balaam's on his way going and is still connected to gain. The New Testament, the book of Jude, Second Peter, Revelation, they mention Balaam. They actually bring him up. And in all those cases, they bring him up almost as a false teacher who teaches for selfish gain. So that's, that sort of helps connect this teaching. Is he's going with the wrong attitude. And here's how the Lord ferrets that out. I'll pick up in the second half of 22. It says, now he was riding on the donkey. And his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. It's funny, his anger's kindled now, isn't it? And he struck the donkey with his staff. Here's the good part. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. 
So I'm just imagining in this room, there are some of you who just grew up, you know, the Bible has always been true in your heart, and you read this and you're like, this is the talking donkey of Balaam. And you're okay with that? And I imagine in some in this room, you're thinking, these people actually think this donkey talked, <laughs> right? And then there's something in the middle, something in the middle, some sort of, was it really a talking donkey? Could it have been something like um, a vision, you know? Could it have been that Balaam, everybody else hears hee-haw, hee-haw, but Balaam hears, hey, why are you hitting me, man? Come on now. When have I steered you wrong? You know, is it, and I'll say this, just as someone sensitive to a person here who's walking into the belief of God, there's no test on this at the gates of heaven, all right? I, I, I really care, I really care when we approach the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that you know that happened. And that's a bigger miracle. It, the Son of God dying for my sins is way bigger than donkey talking, but I understand. I mean, comparatively, this is just a parlor trick. But if you believe Jesus died for your sins, but you don't know what to do with Balaam's donkey, I have a sense that you'll get in. All right? So I'm not trying to like beat you up about this. If you want to know what I think, I think it was a talking donkey. I think it's better that way. I love that it's a talking donkey. If I were God... I'd have done a talking donkey. It's style points. It's cool. It's hilarious. The whole story is hilarious. If, if I was a nine-year-old Israelite boy gathered around the fire, when the word got to us, the whole Balaam son of Beor story finally made its way to the people, and I'm sitting there as my grandfather, my, my grandfather's dad, he died in the wilderness, but my dad is telling the story, right? My dad's telling the story, of how the seer of seers, the man who can see the spirit world unlike anyone else, the international sorcerer of divination, hailing from his land up north, 340 miles away, weighing in at 135 pounds, when he can't see what his she-donkey sees? That's awesome. It's that... It's God's way. When my people hear, they'll know that I'm fighting for them in places they didn't even know there was a fight. They're down in the plains of Moab with their hands full of life. And I am hundreds of miles away, deep in the scheming plots of people they don't even know are looking at them. Making a mockery of their ways. Because I am not a God who will be coaxed by a diviner. I'm a God who will use him to proclaim my will. And in that, this is a better story. The truth is, we don't know, we may never know all the things that God is doing for you and me outside of our sight, over the hill, down the road, different space and time, as us as a people, the nation of God's people, those who are part of the promises, God is fighting for us in all sorts of ways and places and times 
Because we are His. And because His will takes place through us. And this is why He can say, you won't get more than you can bear. Because He is sitting outside of it all, deciding what you can and what you cannot handle. And the things you cannot handle, He handles. Let's hear the words of the angel. Verse 32, And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. You have Balaam, he's this four hire guy. He takes money and he convinces God's to do things. And God now has him heading on a path where he's going to say what God wants him to say and get nothing for it. He's going to ultimately go to the king of Moab. And when Moab says, curse Israel, and Balaam opens his mouth, blessings for Israel come out. He's, he, he may not, his heart might not belong to God, but his mouth does now. There's another thought. Just as we make sense of it, I mean, I understand there's places here in the Old Testament where this is a rough place in the Old Testament, by the way, for this, the generation that is thinking now, we come back and this is the very section of Scripture where we find, you know, the bloodthirsty God of the Jews who destroys people and seems to have an appetite for blood and all of these things. And I think it's worth noting. I think it's worth noting. In, in the story, even as we started talking from Numbers 21 on, Israel has not been picking fights beneath the name of God. They come up to Edom and they say, can we come in? We'll pay for what we eat. We'll pay for what we drink. We'll stay on the road. We'll walk right through. We won't do anything wrong. Edom says no. Does God say, how dare Edom say no? Go destroy Edom. No, he doesn't say that. He says, he actually puts the burden of that decision on the people of Israel. Turn south, go south, and I'm going to deal with your impatience along the way. They take on themselves the wrongdoing of Edom. And then they come all the way north. They walk all the way around Moab. They never go through Moab. They don't have anything to do with Moab. They have no eyes set on Moab. They have no avarice for Moab, no ambition for Moab. They go through, they ask the king of Sihon, can we please come in? We just want to cross your road and cross so we can get across. God has promised us that land. That's the only land we want. That's the only place we're going. And it was the king of Sihon that came out and attacked. And now the people of Israel are sitting in the plains of Moab, minding their own business, and the king of Moab is trying to figure out how to attack them. And in all of this, we should see the mercy of God, not only to Israel, but I'll even say it, even to Moab. 
Moab wants to go to war. All Moab needs is a tiny little curse from Balaam, the son of Beor, to convince them to draw swords and go to battle. That's all they need. And God won't give it to them. Certainly, we don't have to worry about Israel in this matter. Certainly, we've already seen that God has the power to destroy rogue armies who would come against his chosen people. Certainly, we've seen this. Why not just let Moab come down? Why is God sparing Moab? I think it's because God does love this world. And I think it's because Edom is people, and Moab is people, and Ammon is people, and Persia's people, and Babylon's people, and Assyria's people. There are people in this world that God sends, sends his people to. The whole goal is to bring the people of God into his promise, establish them in the land, so that they might be a light to the world. It's not God's goal to just like burn a scorched earth path across the nations for his people, but rather quite the opposite, to establish his people so that people might have a highway to come back to him. God is doing so much that we cannot see. And on occasion, he gives us a glimpse of this so that we know it, so that we remind ourselves, Lord, you are at work in ways that I can't see. And that's why I can trust that you'll give me nothing more than what I can bear. Let's pray. Lord, this is our prayer this morning. As we, we come to you, we're going to take time this morning just to confess in our hearts that... <clears throat> You are at work beyond our sight. And Lord, we need to remember that. Help us to remember that. Because when that is in our minds, then we can trust that you've only put on our plate what we can handle. You've only put on our shoulders what we can bear. That you won't ask for us more than what we're able to do. And what you have put in front of us, Lord, you... Intend for us to do well. Lord, we're thankful that your story with Israel is not that you loved Israel at the cost of hating all else, but rather that you loved Israel so that your love might be seen through Israel to everyone else, Lord. Because we, so many of us here are those people who have received mercy when we were not yours so that one day we might hear and understand. Lord, anyone here, Lord, all of us here who at one time were outside of the faith have to trust that you were working beyond our sight to bring us so that we could see you. Lord, we ask that you would allow these these old stories of the foundation of our faith to hold us up and to let us know that much more happens by the hand of God than what we can see.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.